Thank you very much, and good morning to all. It's truly a joy to be here with you. You know, one of my classmates in seminary, the first time that he preached at a church, he wanted to pray in his sermon. And what he had in mind to say was, bow with me before God. But what came out of his mouth was, bow before me. <laughs> so I, I hope not to commit that kind of mistake, but I would beg your forgiveness for any shortcomings in my we serve an awesome God, do we not? And he gave us an awesome book. And I think all Christians would agree it is important to read and study and understand the book, but it can be a daunting task. It's a huge book, isn't it? It's 66 different works of literature. You have narrative, poetry, prophecy, Grecian literature. How does it all fit together? I think understanding the Bible is kind of like putting together a puzzle. And what the church has done very well at is studying word by word, verse by verse, and chapter by chapter. And that is good, and that is necessary. But when you and I do our study, and we look at one chapter, it's kind of like getting this piece of puzzle. We do our study, thank you very much. But uh, what orientation does this piece go? And where does it fit in the big picture? Is it up there, down there, over here? We don't know. And there's a hole cut out. Maybe a chapter leaves a question unanswered. But maybe there's another piece that will fit in and provide that. Or maybe this part that sticks out here, maybe that's like a prophecy. And another piece will connect and show how that prophecy gets fulfilled. And so I think understanding the Bible is like getting that puzzle. Now, what I'm told, I've never built one of these big 2,000-piece puzzles, but I'm told that you start by finding the four corner pieces. That's it. So it's boom, 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 the four corners. And then you look for the pieces that have one straight edge, and you build your outline like a rectangle. And then you fill in all the pieces in the middle. And that is what I hope to do over the next couple of months, is take us from Genesis to Revelation at a high level, building the outline of the scripture story. And then for the rest of your lives, and it will take a lifetime of study, you can fit in all the middle pieces, but I think having the outline will give you a frame of reference for how you look at scripture. And I will just emphasize that the scripture is a story. We might note that Moses did not leave us a five-volume systematic theology. We should be thankful for that. He left us a five-volume narrative. And stories have setting, character, thought. Usually there's a, a hero, and the hero has a desire, and there's some kind of problem that prevents that hero's desire. And the story revolves around how the hero overcomes that problem. And it's no different in Scripture. So today we will start, vividly enough, at the beginning. We will cover Genesis chapters 1 to 4. And we don't have time to go into all the details, but we'll hit the major points. And so, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And starting in verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So already, in one verse, we have a new character, God. He's the 
to where it was going, and we have the shadows, the heavens and the earth. And as you read through chapter one, you will find that the hero of the story creates everything that is over a six-day period. So he creates the dry land, the sea, the heavens, and then he will fill the dry land and the sea and the heavens. And on the sixth day, he will create humanity, male and female. Down in verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So a couple of observations from the first chapter. We see the repetition of the phrase, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. And in verse 31, we see it is very good. Now keep that in the back of your head, because in chapter 3, a certain woman is going to see that a forbidden tree is good. Keep that in the back of your mind. Also, we see a pattern that the creature and the vegetation all reproduce and multiply according to their kind. But when it came to male and female, they don't do that. They multiply according to God's kind because they are image bearers of God. And so the purposes of humanity, God created humanity not to be God, but to be like God. He created them to rule this earth, to extend the rule and reign of God. In other words, he wants humanity to extend God's kingdom on the earth. The problem in the story is that a man won't do it. He will give the kingdom to someone else. Chapter 2 is not a second and different version of creation, as some have accused the Bible. Rather, it is a zooming in on day six of creation, focusing on creation of man and woman and the first marriage. So in verse 7 of chapter 2, we read this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So Adam was the first man, and he needed both body and spirit. And the union of body and spirit is the Bible's definition of life. Death, then, is the separation of body and spirit. And that is why you and I need resurrection bodies. We want eternal life, and we need a body that will last forever, together with our spirit. In verse 8, the Lord God will plant a garden in Eden. And what I want you to notice about that is the whole planet is not Eden. The, the garden is in a specific location. It is a paradise. And the job of the man and the woman will be to spread the paradise of the garden over the entire world. And if you'll allow me to create a word, let's call it to edenify. It means to make like Eden. So they want to edenify the whole planet. And as we read through chapter 2, we will get a trip into the garden. Mist that comes up from the ground. Rivers that flow out of the garden. Various trees and plants. And there are two trees in particular tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 15, God put the man, or very literally it would be he rested the man in the garden to serve the garden and to guard the garden. And there's a little bit of 
irony that will come up in the next chapter because when he gets expelled from the garden, he no longer serves the garden. He serves the grass as his place. And he no longer guards the garden. It is angels and a flaming torch that will guard the garden. So we have some irony there. And then we have a warning in verse 17 regarding the tree of life. The Lord God says, of the, uh, or excuse me, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's the strongest possible way you could say in the Hebrew language, don't do it. You will surely, surely, surely die. And then in verse 18, the first not good thing in all creation, man is alone. Now the issue here is not loneliness. So please do not use this verse for the single men who need to get married. Uh, that, that is not <laughs> the intent here. Rather, the issue is Adam is supposed to multiply in his rib and Edenify the whole planet, and he cannot do that by himself. And so he will need a helper. And this term of helper is not, it's not a term of inferior, inferiority. In fact, the same term is used of God being a helper of the nation Israel. Rather, he will help the man in fulfilling his God-given purpose. So by the close of chapter 2, we have the setting of the story, heaven, earth, and the garden. We have the characters, God, the hero, and we have the man and the woman in the first meal. And we have God's desire, which is that his image bearers rule the world on his behalf. As I mentioned before, every hero's desire has a problem. Sure enough, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now don't jump in and say, oh, that's Satan, that's Satan. Read your systematic theology books on the shelf for that. And, and we'll follow this as a story. At the moment, we don't know anything about the serpent other than he wanted an animal and he was crafty. Verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he is provoking doubt in God's words, causing the woman to doubt what God has said is good and right. Remember, God saw that it was good. And the conversation will continue. And down in verse 4, the serpent says to the woman, You will surely not direct contradiction to what God has said, you surely will die. So now we know that whoever the serpent is, he is diametrically opposed to God. And so he's the antagonist. He's the bad guy in the story. And then continuing that conversation in verse 6, uh, the, uh, or sorry, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the issue with opened eyes? Uh, was, were Adam and Eve blind and stumbling around the garden? Oh, wait, where's that tree? Yeah, they, they could see. The issue is, in chapter 1, God saw that it was good, or very good. He said something was not good. Here, the woman saw that the tree was good. She determined for herself what is good and right, rather than caring about what is good and right in God's eyes. And 
in fact, this pattern of words shows up many times through Scripture. For example, in Genesis 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were good. Again, it's the same word. Usually we translate beautiful. It happens in Judges. And it happens with David and Bathsheba, where David saw that Bathsheba was good. Again, we translate beautiful. But the issue is not that she was a good-looking woman. The issue is David deciding for himself it's okay for him to have that woman when she already had a husband. That's the essence of sin, determining for yourself what is good and right. You know, here we are in the month of June, and unfortunately this month has been hijacked as Pride Month. And I thought this was primarily a Western problem, maybe led by the West, but I read this week that even in 2021, when the COVID lockdowns were still in place, 107 countries celebrated Pride Month. Isn't that wild? And I, I can only think that in the last few years, that number has gone up. And the issue is they are deciding for themselves what is good and right. It is okay for two men to get married. God saw that two, one, three, or five or two women, or for men to try and become women, or, or whatever. It's all insanity, Scripture says. But again, the issue is determining for yourself what is good and right. And so the woman ate the fruit, and she also gave it to her husband, who was with her. He was just standing there all along. Okay? He did not protect these guys in any way. And this is an absolute disaster, because God had made humanity to rule over the beasts. So what has just happened is that has been inverted as they submitted to one of the beasts of the earth. In other words, they handed over the kingdom of the world to a serpent. So this is a big, big problem. And so God will come to the garden, and you might picture this as a violent, windy storm, God appearing as a whirlwind and thrashing the trees, very violent appearance. And man and woman hide in the garden in the fearful presence of the Lord and, and he confronts them and in verse 14 he will seek the serpent and curse the serpent. And then in, in verse 15, which is one of the very important verses that really drives the, the whole plot line of scripture, this is what it says and I've translated it very literally for us. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, this is the verse that tells us there are two teams in the story. There are the seed of the woman, plural, and there are the seed of the serpent, plural. And all humanity is on one of these two teams. It also gives us, in this verse, this very clear messianic prophecy. He will strike your head. This is God speaking to the serpent. So there will be a promised son of the woman who will strike the serpent's head. Now, why the head? Well, if you kill a snake, you don't hit its tail, right? You need to hit its head. And that would be very good because the serpent is ruling the world. So if you strike its head, you kill it, you take back the kingdom of the world. So that is what will be the hope of the woman. 
and really this this uh, verse is what is God's plan to resolve the primary problem in the church. You have a person willing to work, and they're man and woman. They no longer have access to the garden, to the tree of life. The ground will be cursed, and they're hoping for this promised tree who will strike the serpent, who will bring humanity back to the garden, who will give them rest. So moving one verse ahead to verse 16 now, we have our slides ahead. And uh, again, this is very literal translation here. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow, you will bring forth sons, yet your desire will be for your man because he will rule over you. Now, this verse is not about pain and childbirth. In fact, in, in your English Bible, it might say pain and childbirth, but that word almost never means physical pain. Uh, it refers to emotional turmoil. And it is not in the bringing forth of children generally, or even daughters. It is specifically about bringing forth sons, that she will have sorrow. Now, why is that? We don't know yet in the story, but chapter 4 will answer that question. That her hope as she has just been told in verse 15, she will have an offspring who will strike the serpent's head. And at this point, we have no idea whether it'll take thousands of years or many, many generations of the line of promise being passed down until we get to Jesus Christ. So for all we know at this point, the first child that's born could be freed from famine. So she is hoping for that son. And that is why last part of the verse, yet your desire will be for your man. Um, many translations will say for your husband, but that really doesn't make sense in this context. Because she has just been told she will have an offspring who strikes the serpent's head. So the man who's with her has failed. He's not her hope. Her hope is the man who will come from her, i.e. her son. And that makes sense because Bible might say rule over you, but that preposition is flexible, but it never means over. And in this or by, probably with is the best thing. And that makes sense because he will strike the serpent's head, restore the rule of God's image bearers over the earth, and rule with the woman. So that is her hope and her desire for this And then in verse 17 through 19, the Lord will speak to Adam. He will curse the ground. And it is, again, with sorrow, the same word, that he will work the ground and eat of it until the day that he dies and goes back into the ground. So a Adam is kind of built to have to change from the dirt and then go back to the dirt. So we have a complete disaster here. Humanity is no longer ruling the earth. They've been expelled from the garden. No more access to the tree of life. The ground is cursed. They're condemned to die and return to the ground. And their only hope, their only hope is in the promised seed of man. And so, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man, and the translation
Galatians where he says, with the help of, the problem is basically we need some help from God. There's nothing there. There's no helping happening in Romans 6. It essentially, I have acquired a name, comma, Yahweh, or Lord. Remember back in 3.16, her desire was for a man, and now she has acquired a man. So Eve is hoping that this is the promise seed to strike the serpent. And again, we don't know. That takes thousands of years until Jesus Christ also, a stunning revelation from this verse is that she understood that the promised seed had to be God in the flesh. So already by Genesis chapter 4, we have a picture that whoever the Messiah is, whoever the promised seed is, he must be the God-man. And so Cain was born, and his brother Abel was born, and the two of them would grow up. And what it would literally say in the Hebrew is, at the end of days, Cain has a fit in verse 7. And this is a, also a very key verse and also hard to translate, but we'll try to do it quite literally. This is God speaking to Cain in verse 7. If you do good, remember, God saw that it was good, Adam saw that it was good. And so Cain has a choice here to agree with God about what is good and right, or to decide for himself. That's his choice. If he does good, in one word, yes, and, and what it means is having the, the rank of the firstborn son, meaning he would be the carrier of the promise. That would be good. But if you do not do good, sin was a crouching one at the door because his desire is for you because you will rule with him. And most English translations on this verse make it sound like sin is desiring sin. Actually, that is impossible. Sin is a feminine noun in Hebrew, and there's a masculine pronoun, his desire. So there's no way it's sin being desired. And the only character we have in the context who fits this desire would be the serpent. So the serpent is also desiring Cain. So if Cain does good, he will be the carrier of the promise. If not, he will forfeit that status, and he will be enticed by the serpent. So let's see, we have six, we have five points. We have these two very key verses, 3.16 and 4.7. And just notice the color scheme, that in both of them, there's a desire. We have the desire of the woman. She hopes that Cain is the promised seed. In 4.7, we have the desire of the serpent who wants to entice and cause Cain to rule with him. And there's rulership in both cases, but these are not the same kind of rule. When God rules the world through his image bearer, it brings blessing and care and provision. You can think of it as the kind of rule that the shepherd has over his sheep. But when the serpent rules, it is by domination and by oppression. We all got like really good doses of it during COVID, right? We felt the, the heavy-handed oppressiveness squeezing the life out of us. That is how the serpent wants to rule. Now, the serpent, of course, heard 
prophecy that the promised seed would strike his head. And he doesn't want that to happen because he'll die and he needs his kingdom. So what are his options? What can he do about that? Well, he can either deceive or he can kill. With Cain, he succeeded in deceiving. He deceived Cain and got Cain to join the will of God, to do his own will. With Abel, the promise was passed to Abel, who shared the desire of his mother for the promised seed and resolved to keep sharing Abel's desire. And really, this is the pattern that we see throughout the scriptures. So it should be no surprise when we get to the book of Exodus, you have Pharaoh, the serpent seed, who is ruling the world with the serpent. And he says, hey, let's kill all the Israelite baby boys. What's he trying to do? Kill the line of promise. When you get to the book of Esther, you have Haman, who's a ruler, with the serpent, by the way, and he wants to annihilate the Jews. Why? To cut off the line of promise, to prevent the promised seed from coming and striking his head. And this will carry on all the way to the New Testament, where we have Jesus Christ. And let's recall that at his temptation, one of the temptations was that Satan would offer him all the kingdoms of the world. It's the same old temptation that he offered to Cain to rule with the serpent. Of course, that failed. And through the agents of the serpent, he was killed, the Pharisees. And the first time the Pharisees come on the scene is Matthew chapter 3. And John the Baptist says, usually in in an English translation, we see, you brood of vipers. But the literal translation is, you offspring of serpents. So if you're following the story, he says, oh, they're the serpent seed. They're going to kill the promised seed. And that is exactly what they did. And sadly, this pattern would have continued all the way to the end until Christ returns. So if we might summarize where we've been today, just as an aside, we've seen that the setting of the Bible story, the heaven, heavens and the earth, God is the hero, he's the main character, and his desire is that his image bearers would rule the earth. The problem in the story is that they gave their rule over to the serpent. So now the serpent is ruling. But that problem hasn't changed God's original design. And so the solution is from Genesis 3.15, where a promised seed will strike the serpent's head. And in Genesis 4, all the way to Revelation 19, is the outworking of Genesis 3.15. It's the whole plan of how God will bring that image bearer back to strike the serpent's head. And then finally, the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20 to 21, that is where a wonderful thing, the image bearer of God rules over the serpent. And so in a nutshell, that is the story of scripture. And just understanding Genesis 3.15, I think, in my opinion, is one of the centerpieces of the whole picture of the story of scripture. So, what about you and me? We've gone through Genesis 1 to 4. How might we think about applying this in our lives as Christian Christophers? We need to recognize that there are two sides in the story. There are two seeds, the 
two different desires and two different kinds of rules. And so, fairly simple question, what is your desire? What do you want? What is your hope? And by default, we all start as members of human culture. And it is very enticing to pull other member of human culture in because the person has the rule of the world. He can offer the power, the wealth, and the fame that people say that they have. So it's very tempting, very tempting to stay in human culture. Or we can join Team God, share in the desire of the body for the common food. And remember, the second song I sang before was so very well aptly expressed. It's a longing, a chronic daily grieving, a momentary pain. We are longing, along with the world, for that common food to come and restore the rule of the earth to God's own authority. We're waiting for that. And so if you have never put your hope or your trust, your faith in the promised seed who in the course of time as we come to learn is Jesus Christ, if you have never done that, then I urge you to consider that. Putting your hope, your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ because really we are all in the same place as Adam and Eve. We are outside of the garden. We're on a cursed earth. We're being ruled over by the serpent. And we are condemned to death. And there is no hope, no hope whatsoever, except in Jesus. At this time, I'd like to invite the music team to come back up. And we have a, a great song that I think captures Genesis 1 to 4. And it talks about the glories of creation from Genesis 1. But it also, I think, captures the longing for the return of the Lord to rule the earth again. It's a lovely song, so let's sing that together.